0: Welcome, let's talk about politics and governance. We will explore how various organizations and actors respond to armed conflict in Africa, with a focus on the European Union. Our guest Malta Brozig, from the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa, will explain how institutions can effectively collaborate in complex conflict situations. He identifies four conditions for managing this complexity and will provide insights into the EU's role in the Sahelian security regime complex. As an example, I'm Rodrigo Silva. Let's talk about politics and governance. This podcast is powered by Kogitatu Press. You can listen to this episode on the Let's Talk About Politics and Governance website, on Khojitatu Press' YouTube channel, and whatever you get your podcast. Malte, welcome to our episode. Yeah, thank you for having me. Malte, before we jump into your research itself, can you explain to us, to our listeners, this concept of regime complexity?
1: Yeah, regime complexity is around for some time now, but especially I think in the last 10 to 15 years, it got more and more prominent. So the basic idea is that it refers originally to regimes, so that means treaties, international law, for example, but these days we uh, focus much more also on the overlap of international organizations like the European Union with the United Nations or with the African Union here. It basically describes, first of all, a situation of institutional overlap. And that is important because we have seen, especially in the security, but also in other fields, that institutions are overlapping more and more, either by membership or by action. And you can imagine that out of this overlap, a lot of questions actually emerge and how cooperation is actually organized. So it is also a little bit problematic. Mm-hmm. I think it was
0: a good kickoff bit to help us frame where we're going now so what's so what's the importance of studying as you start as you as you did is a regime complexity in conflict situations in africa so tell us about the importance of this
1: yeah, yeah well first of all i should mention that the article that we're referring to is also a co-authored article so it was not just myself but Willy Planck as well as ibrakis e. have also contributed to it And the the, the importance is that once you have like a proliferation of actors in a situation that's independent of if it's security or economics or something else, of course, the immediate question that comes up is how do we coordinate all of this? Right. And does it make sense? So are we actually making our lives more complicated here because more actors means more coordination, more costs of coordination, maybe? Or can we organize it in a way to create more synergy? So pooling pooling of resources. And in the end, very often, we actually see both. But this is, I think, the, the biggest question, the elephant in the room. Of course, it seems when I read
0: your article that you and your co-author wanted to, so in terms of expectations of your research, you wanted to identify effective governance strategies within regime complexity and to understand how actors can fulfill specific roles within this complex conflict response system is this correct exactly so
1: we are a little bit eu centered so the the big challenge for the eu but also for other actors is to to make sense of the existing complexity here and as the eu is still one of the largest most capable actors in the security field in in the Sahel. The question emerges then, so what can the EU do to remain an important, remain an important actor and work with, not against the existing regime complexity? And in this regard, we, we're coming up with like four arguments and we try to test them against reality, so to speak. And one argument is that for regime complexity, the best way of having or maintaining influence would be, for instance, to be a resource hub. And this is where the EU can actually score, I think the the highest points. The EU is one of the largest donors here. But it's not just about just giving money out or, or running projects. Obviously much more needs to be done here. Then the second argument would then be that you need to in order for the system to work, a regime complex is an, can be understood as a system in its own in its own right. It works best if the different partners, are complementary to one another. So if they can really create synergies. So resources spent, we being a resource hub, but resources also spent for creating complementarity. This is where the EU is strong. and the end, the article somehow con- concludes, but that is even not enough. So we do one more step. We don't just look at, like let's say, the top level of interaction between the big international institutions here in the Sahel. So EU, AU, UN, regional economic communities in Africa. So it's an awful lot of them do do, do exist in, in addition to individual state actors and groups and so on. But we also go at the local level, the implementation side. And this is something that the literature has not done so far. So in that regard, we try to add a bit of innovation. And we... Combine also two theoretical frameworks. One is the literature on regime complexity that we already talked about, and the other one is complexity theory. And then we develop two more arguments here that we try to test in the in the field. And this is the argument that comes up from regime complexity that these systems work best if they can self-organize themselves. Now, this is a challenge for the US. Of course. <laughs> but as you can imagine, um you don't want to just, usually the programs are designed in a way that they support your own goals more or less as an institution, right? So you have a more, you want to have control over your own resources and how they are, they are spent. If we now say, okay, the best way would actually to go more, focus more on a system self-organization that implies that your partners have to have a high degree of independence, and that's a bit problematic, I think, from the EU's perspective, but we would argue that is extremely helpful for the system as such to, to work. And then the last argument of the four would be adaptive peace building. So we are focusing on the Sahel. By the way, this is an enormously large field um, here, so we can only take a little piece of it and explore it. The argument of adaptive peace building is also important because it first links back to complexity theory and basically says that there is not, let's say, the magic bullet that you can fire at the conflict and then it's over. But you have to, for each conflict, find out what instruments and tools are working best. So it's an iterative learning process. So the program should not be designed in a top-down manner like we know what's best (laughs) and then we implement it. But it has to be a trial and error thing. And there again, I think the article comes to the conclusion that yeah, these are the rather weaker points. So the EU is not really in that position to to accept that trial and error situ- situation there. But there's an emerging literature on adaptive peace building that we referred to and it clearly shows that well, this is actually the way forward. And the final word here: if we look at how conflict and the Sahel across different countries and communities evolves, I mean. It's not a success story from the perspective of international interveners here. So we critically have to rethink our approach there. Okay, that's very good. This is a well, complex
0: discussion about this. I'm curious to hear about potential policy implications of this research or implications already being put in place. Can you tell us about that? Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm- of course, we as academics uh, always use high-flying terms here, but I think there are also very practical messages good. In, in it. On the one hand, I mean, keep the good things that are working. I mean, the EU as a resource app is really like a model that works and keeps you in the game. That's one message. On the other hand, I think... It is really that we need a more shift in the mindset of how programs are designed and operated. I know this is hard because institutional cultures change extremely slowly and never quickly, but the adaptive side of designing peace building programs, I think, is, is like. The biggest message, I think, in the, in the article, and we are still very far from it. So what we have in terms of knowledge is we know an awful lot of instruments on how to build peace, but we don't know the exact recipe for each individual conflict. And this requires us to again and again learn and start a little bit from zero and then build, build up knowledge step, step by step by step. Um, so that would be, I think, our maybe practical message here. Okay, and I'm I'm assuming from well from all the the
0: findings that you had and, and now these policy implications that there's still a lot to find. So let's look ahead the future. Future re- research on this topic should be looking at what more actors, more conflicts. Where should we be looking at?
1: I think, and I'm. I start from the perspective of the current events, very recent events, <laughs> with, for, for example, France opting out, the peacekeeping operation of the UN also drawing, drawing down uh, at, this, at the one side. On the other side, levels of conflict are still high. So you could look at the indicators of battle, death, etc., my worry is that we are opting out and leaving a situation behind that might even get worse in the in the future and i think one now this is the time then also for what lessons should should be learned here and i, and I think one element not overclaiming here but one element is that we really has to endorse and under better understand existing complexities. And this means nonlinearity, lots of actors at different levels, actually. And we have to understand that we cannot come with a one-size-fits-all approach here. Mm-hmm. And this, again, requires more adjustment and adaptation and learning from the side of the big international interveners here. There's no guarantee for success in situations of active conflict here. So it's always like you 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 are intervening in an extremely difficult situation, which doesn't really give you any guarantees for, for success here. That's That's clear, but there's no reason to give up. I think we still haven't really exhausted the potential of really working with, not against complexity. So complexity should not be used as an excuse for doing nothing yeah, here, but it's better to actively engage it. It's good looking
0: at a a positive way of looking at complexity itself. And it's not it's not a problem per se. It's actually useful for this. This is how
1: the world is. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Can you provide some additional resources about the topic?
1: I would just like to refer the few to the special issue in which the article was actually published. So there are, I'm not sure, maybe 10 or 12, quite a lot of articles in it, and they focus on different aspects of the EU within regime complexity across different policy areas. So I think that provides everyone with a good up-to-date overview of the of the literature and discussions of course we
0: thank you for the promotion the, so this thematic issue is available in the politics and governance website right if you are watching us on the let's talk about politics and governance website for our, what listeners on your right there will be a link to the article and then to the thematic issue malta this is a complex conversation in every sense so let's narrow it down Let's go to the punchline. If there is anything you want our audience to remember about this talk, what
1: would it be? Complexity, complexity, complexity. (laughs) No, it's not. Complexity is not the opponent. It's not the enemy. There's no reason to give up. But complexity challenges our thinking. And I think most of us are grown up in an environment where we got taught to look for cause-effect relationships and complexity turns it upside down. So that mind shift, so we should be courageous enough to to endorse it and and, and engage it. Malte, it was a pleasure.
0: This podcast is powered by Kogitatiu Press. You can listen to this episode on the Let's Talk About Politics and Governance website, on Kogitatiu Press YouTube channel, and whatever you get your podcast.